Welcome to the Crushing Cashflow Podcast, where we share phenomenal advice and dozens of decades of wisdom from investors and entrepreneurs of all types and all stages of their journeys. We'll cover many forms of cash flowing assets, such as real estate, stock investing, entrepreneurship, and general finance guidance. Listen in and learn from those who are crushing it out there, as well as those who have been crushed by business or their investments. Now, here's your host, Andrew Shutsky. Welcome back to another episode of Crushing Cashflow. With me today is Mr. Roger Becker. Warm welcome to Roger. Roger, thanks for joining, man. Andrew, I am honored. So this is a special episode for me, and we've done 60 plus episodes in the past, and I'm really, really excited to do this one. It's our first time talking with a, you know, a business owner, actually a fellow podcast host, and a multiple, multiple time experienced limited partner investor in real estate. So Roger, couldn't be more excited to have you on the show. Fantastic. I, I hope I can deliver. All good. All good. So to tell us about what brought you in this world of real estate, you had a media company for a number of years. I'm not sure if you're still doing that. We can talk through that. What led you to real estate investing in, in the syndication world? Sure. What a good question. You know, this is the second time I've ever been a guest. So it's really weird. As, anyway, you know what? One of my best friends to this day was a very, very successful real estate investor in San Francisco where I lived at the time. And he turned me on to the idea of, geez, 22, 23 years ago. And he turned me on to a friend of his who was putting deals together. And so I started investing with this guy first friend and I had dinner last Friday night and we were talking about the other guy that he turned me on to. And we couldn't decide if he was worth a hundred million or closer to 300 million. Oh, wow. Yeah. About 22,000 units under his, Ooh. this point has done just ridiculous things. It's a lot of volume. Yeah. So from that experience, you know, obviously you continued investing for a number of years. You know, what, what kept you going? Another great question. So I was really not starting my career, but I was kind of in the middle of you know my ad agency business at that time. I was probably about your age or a little bit older by maybe a couple of years. And you know what I at that time, I didn't know the difference between a pref and I just thought it yeah. was, I was such an immature investor. I thought yeah. that, okay, a nine pref, which was, was, it means 9%. I yeah. mean, I should yeah. be getting checks and that never happened. And I, I was very immature investor. And so the answer is I didn't continue for many, many, many years. I kept my money with the guy, never looked at statements, nothing for many, many years. And I finally started to a couple of years ago, why I got back involved is I need more cash flow right now mm -hmm. than I did for various reasons. What a great transition time. When you're looking for a sponsor, you know, a good team, what are you looking for? How do you find them? Yeah, it's an evolution. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> I've really been getting into it aggressively in the last few years. I want somebody in a perfect world that has ideally, because it's very hard, but 15 plus years experience, mm -hmm. somebody that started before 2010-ish when everything's just gone straight up and you know everybody's done well. So ideally, somebody that started a long time ago, longer the better, and somebody that's got a very, very tightly defined niche. In a perfect world, I would have somebody doing 
you know, whether it be warehouse, multifamily, whatever the asset class is, only in one geographic area that they live in. And that's not easy to find. But somebody that's, I'm interested in somebody that has done one thing 10,000 times as opposed to somebody that's done 10,000 things. That makes a ton of sense. I mean, the focus is something we talk a lot about, just being consistent and, and having a very specific purpose, intentionality. I think living in an area you know, provides a whole lot of benefits as well. Like you said, it's, it's quite rare these days, but there's a lot of hot markets. There's you know, maybe 20, 30 markets where deals are being done every day, hundreds of millions of dollars in volume. So not, not quite as uncommon. You mentioned a few different you know, asset classes you threw out there, multifamily and some others. Do you tend to, to stray towards one or do you try to diversify to different groups? Yeah, another good question. I have been diversifying and you know, I, I have to say I do things ad hoc. I'm not particularly strategic, should be, but I'm not. So I have been moving away from multifamily mm. only because I just think we're so incredibly late cycle in it. That being said, I did invest in a deal in Houston because it was like a tax abatement. It was a, a joint venture with the Houston Housing Authority and no no taxes, you know, which is the biggest expense. And the other thing is wow. that investment was recommended to me by somebody I trust and all they do is multifamily and have for 20 plus years. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So moving away from multifamily, it's way competitive out there right now. So a lot of deals are being done. They're, they're pushing the envelope on what we normally call conservative, which is not as conservative anymore. What are you looking at? Is there, are you looking at self-storage? Are you looking at getting to industrial or a mix? I'm evaluating all that now because you know I still have money on the sidelines. It's kind of getting gobbled by you know inflation. All the above, but it's a very challenging environment, Andrew, because yeah, they're all they're all you know not necessarily late cycle per se, but they're all cap rates have been compressed everywhere. So it's yeah. very. I mean, I'm going to even have a conversation somebody later today with short term rentals, maybe buying one of those, but that makes yeah. me nervous too, frankly. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I was talking to a buddy of mine last Friday. I said, said something very similar, saying like, you know what? It's really not a like multifamily real estate's fantastic, but you know what? It's not a secret anymore. You know, maybe four or five, six, even you know, post 2010, you know, that era, there was like, oh, okay, there's this underground scene that people are looking at these these exclusive properties, and there's all this there's all this cash flow, all these great benefits. It's not a secret anymore, right? <laughs> like. They, like there's a lot of demand out there, especially a lot of attention from international investors and big institutions that are just gobbling up these properties. When we, you know I'm underwriting dozens, if not more, a week, and you're just looking at what these things are selling for, and I'm like, I don't know what you're doing or what parameters you're putting in there, but I'm not even close in a lot of these cases. So, you know, you know I, I got an email, uh, so I'm involved with a group that's fairly well known and respected. I'll say who it is because he wouldn't mind because it's a plug. Is Praxis? Mm -hmm. He's he's out of Santa Rosa, and anyway, oh, yeah. I invested in a couple deals with him about a year ago, and they're he's basically going to sell them a year later because he's gotten such ridiculous offers. But yep. in the, in the quarterly like review last week, he said prices are starting to come down. I don't know how yeah. true that. So 
you know, there you go. No they are. They are. I'm just curious, even with prices coming down, when you factor in the premium you're now paying for a rate cap on a bridge loan or the premium you're paying at a higher interest rate on a $30, $40 million loan, it, it takes a lot of price drops to, to offset and come up with yeah. the same return. So fair enough. But then you wonder maybe it'll <laughs> they'll keep coming down. Who knows? I agree. And no doubt there will be opportunities. It's just gonna be. You know, you just got to be patient, and it may be the needle in a haystack. One in three hundred deals that you, you just got to be patient for. That's that's my philosophy. I think you can. You're nodding at, for those who can't see the video. I think you're agreeing with me. Warren Buffett says the difference between successful people and really successful people is really successful people almost always say no. That's a great one. I might have to steal that actually. <laughs> I might write that down. So we talked about what you look for in a team. You talked about that depth experience, the focus on the niche. Ideally, they're in that geographic area. What do you look for in a deal specifically? Is there certain parameters? Is there something financially you're looking for in a metric? You know, I wish I had a more intelligent answer. And, you know, on, on multifamily stuff, for example, on that recent deal, there was an angle to it. There was some secret sauce. There was tax abatements. Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the, the cash on cash going in like year one is like 8%. Mm-hmm. So cash on cash is something, of course, you know, it's more than something. It's huge. But, you know, when there's a, you know, a credible operator and I can have real confidence that that's going to materialize based on track record and other people that have done a lot of investing. So that plays into it, obviously. Yeah. Other than that, which is virtually impossible to find, is just incredible value. So you and I have a mutual friend that we talked about after we stopped recording when I interviewed you. Yeah. I did a deal in Memphis there. They bought it for 70 a door, a C minus building in an A minus area. And I went to see it to verify it with my own two eyes. My wife mm-hmm. and I went to Memphis for a weekend. They had, they said it was going to be 40 a door to rehab, which they've stuck to. So it was all in 110 a door and it already appraised at 170 Ooh. right then. That's wild. I I invested because there was so much daylight in terms of what could go wrong. The same sponsor, I have a deal in front of me right now where the projected cash on cash is like 5% year one, 6%, 7%. And I'm not going to do the deal because if things contract or if rents contract or, or more to the point, if they don't go up as projected and or if their expenses are higher than they're underwriting, which they're underwriting at 4% a year, which I think is light. Yeah. I'm probably not going to because so, okay. little, so little needs to go wrong for me not to get anything on return on my money. Right. And then if the NOI doesn't materialize after five years, the IRR is not going to be there. And so I'm giving you a really uh, circuitous answer, but I'm that's one deal I did. I just yeah. a deal I wouldn't do. <laughs> yeah, inadvertently, I, you got into what my next question was going to be anyway. It was like, what do you look for in red flags as to where you want to invest? You mentioned hmm, maybe your expense growth is a little, you know, understated. Anything else stand out to you? Is it in the underwriting, or is it mainly a lot of what you talked about? I think was the depth, experience, track record, trustworthiness of the team and the operator. But you meant you called out the expense growth specifically. I'm curious for other things that are red flags for you that you would you would look for and say, oh God, no, this doesn't make any sense. Sure. You mean deal specific? Yeah, deal specific. 
Yeah, that's a big one. Are they projecting too high, you know, rent growth and too low of expenses? And then, you know, is their operating expenses too yeah. realistically too low? But I should look at a lot more deals than I do, frankly, but most of the deals I look have looked at, the performers are like, okay. But at the end of the day, it almost doesn't matter unless the performers just, hey, this is such a terrible deal. Why do it? Yeah. By and large, performers look pretty good because they're pretty generic unless somebody's just really, really doesn't know what they're doing. Yeah. And then the real variable is, is can they execute and make can they it pull work? it off? Yeah, right. I think the sponsor is the bigger variable. I mean, unless unless the performance is just ridiculous. I would agree. I mean, it's all about the assumptions, right? Anybody can state a 15, 16, 17% IRR on paper, but it's all about the assumptions, the exit caps, the growth rates, the, the rent comparables, their ability to get the business plan done in less than the exit in, in the whole period, right? So a lot of times these things may drag out for three, four years and you're just, you're squandering money along the way. So that's I awesome. I ignore projected IRR, targeted IRR. I ignore all of that just because, you know, the people putting it together, well, they got, if we bump rent up 25 bucks a month, we, you know, it does this to our IRR and it's significant. It's kind of silly. I mean, I ignore all that stuff. I really do. Interesting. That's really great to, to get your perspective and, and kind of see what's going through your mind as you're analyzing these, you know, potentially dozens of deals, if not more. By the way, as I rudely interrupt your next smart question, nah. the guy I was telling you about from day one, Mark Hamilton, founder of Hamilton Zans with 22,000 <laughs> units. The last deal I saw from them, they were projecting an IRR, I think of 10% and average cash on cash at four. I might be off a little bit on the cash on cash, but that's mm. the IRR of a guy that has been doing it for 35 years. It's funny you say that. I was just same buddy I was telling you I talked to last Friday, a guy I respect very much. I said, you know, what point it, it seems a de facto floor for a value add multifamily investments like 12, 13%. And the more of these deals we're looking at, I'm like, there's a lot of things that look really good at like a 10 or 10% window. At what point we can be, you know, open and say, hey, we believe in the 10%, but the days of 18, 19, 20% projections with like realistic buffer in there. I'm not going to say that the days are gone, but there's a lot more meat behind a 10% IRR in today's world than you see in a 16, 17, 20% IRR. So I'm sorry, I'm being so rude interrupting you. Not at all. Not at all. My perspective at my age is that, holy cow, the stock market has gone up depending on you know how they even extrapolate a number like this. But the most common number I've heard is 9% a year. Yeah. Okay which is stratospheric. Yeah. So these days, kids sound like, like I'm my own great grandfather, but kids these days, you know, in their thirties and forties think that like, Oh, it's only a 12% IR. We've got to, we've got to put mm -hmm. in targeted 15 to 20. Well, if one can make 15% returns year in, year out on their money for 30 years or something. Yeah. I mean, Warren Buffett's internal rate of return is 18% for like 55 years. That's 18. So that's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. And so, and so given where we are in the cycle, when people have that, an IRR of that, that's why I ignore it because I'm like, it's the only way I pay attention if it really is a very, very deep value add where it's, you know, but then you've got additional risk and the sponsor really, really needs to know what they're doing. 
That's a fantastic perspective, actually. I love the way you framed that. I love the Warren Buffett kind of, you always think of him as this multi, multi-billionaire, but you know, the way he became so successful was time, right? It wasn't just like, hey, I had picked every stock, the exact right opportunity. He got in the market earlier than anybody else did. And he was just, he was patient. He was persistent, never made really aggressive bets. I just finished this great book. I don't know if you read it, Psychology of Money. No, and, and yeah, it's, it's actually, I read a lot of personal finance, all, you know, topics of that nature. And this one stood out to me because it just gave really great perspective just by telling 19 different stories. So free plug for the author of that one. So yeah, I, I love that. I love that reference. One, one thing that stood out to me too, you were passionate about enough of that investing. Now you started your own podcast. You know, I don't know if you're planning on pursuing this professionally, but what led you to do that? Why did you start up? To- it started off as a entrepreneur podcast. And what I realized very early on at six months is yeah. it was a lot easier to get the real estate guys on as guests. Yeah. And as you know, Andrew, you don't exactly make money doing podcasts. No, you do not. And I'm like, why am I working hard to get people on? I'm not making any money doing this. And, and I realized the real estate guys are super easy to get on. I love interviewing the real estate guys. And by the way, all of a sudden, I've got a very big selfish agenda to do the real estate guys. Cause along that time is when I started to deploy money in yeah. real estate. So I'm like, you know what? Drink my own Kool-Aid niche out on this and just make it a real estate podcast and, and make it and have the purpose be for me to learn as much as I can about investing in real estate, which is why I do the podcast. That's absolutely correct. I mean, I, I found the same. I think it's a great way just to meet and make connections. I mean, you can go to all the events in the world, but you know, there's only so many days you can go to a year logistically, right? So this is something you can do week in, week out, which is a great way just to connect with people. And it's fun. Yeah. And and I've met people that I've invested with too. So it's number one, learn because I, you know, I've lost a ton of money in real estate as we talked about when I, when I did my podcast with you. So you can lose and there are going to be people that are going to lose a lot of money in real estate. Yeah. So I, I don't have too many more bites at the apple, so I, I can't afford to lose any, any more money. So I, I got to go, okay, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. I need to learn. I love it. I love it. So as we round out this episode, what would be your, as for someone who's maybe first, second time investing, someone early on their journey, but sitting on the sidelines, what would be your number one takeaway? What would be your top tip for them? What would you tell them? Find somebody that that is a niche within a niche, somebody that does only one thing and have that niche be as refined as humanly possible and have and know that that person's been doing it for a long time. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks so much, Roger, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. It's been a great perspective. It's very much appreciated out of the ordinary of a typical syndicator or an insurance broker or the many, many other great guests we've had on the show. For someone who wants to get in touch with you, maybe want to swap stories, war stories, horror stories, or success stories, how to do so? What's the best way? Well, please don't. No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> First time for that one. <laughs> you're, not, you're not selling anything, so maybe that's why, but yeah. I'm not selling anything, but if you want to get yeah. a hold of me, I'm happy to share my war stories. And I can tell you ways to avoid losing money. Great. If you were so inclined, email me at roger at streetsmartsuccess.com. Thanks so much, Roger. Pleasure. Andrew, be well. Thanks for listening in with us for another episode of the Crushing Cashflow Podcast. We have a small favor to ask of all of our listeners. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Each subscription and rating will help us massively toward our goal of helping reach as many listeners as possible each week. 
Thank you very much once again for listening. We're thrilled to have you with us as part of this journey, and we can't wait to share more of these stories with you. Stay tuned for much more to come.